Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown, the place to learn about supported living property investing. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. In this episode, Chris Watson talks about using the voice of the person being supported to develop self-directed support, enabling the support to be delivered in innovative and creative ways. He gives some great examples of how this has been implemented in practice. Hi, Chris. It's great to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Lucy. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I am good. Um, for people who don't know you, do you want to introduce yourself and tell people about you? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my name is Chris Watson. I am from an organisation called Self-Directed Futures, which is we're a small consultancy organisation that works around the country with local authorities, clinical commission groups and support providers, primarily support living providers, um, to support them around self-directed support, basically improving people's access to personal budgets generally and helping providers understand how what the world of self-directed support is, because I still find a lot of people don't really understand it. Um, same with local authorities, to be honest with you, and CCGs, just really trying to get people to understand the benefits of it and you know, and why people should be in control of their own support and, and, and all those kind of things, really. So I've been doing that for about three years. And um, before that, I was uh, I was a commissioner for quite a long time. But sort of worked in commissioning environment for about 15 years, primarily working with people with learning disabilities and autism and uh, a lot of work on programmes around supported living, uh, around um, moving people out of residential care, helping residential care providers deregister. Um, helping people resettle out of hospital. So I was involved in a programme where we moved about 100, just over 150 people out into their own homes over the course of three years, kind of out of inappropriate hospital settings. Um, and I still have a quite a strong interest in supported living and, and basically the transforming care agenda, as it was known, which is obviously helping people with low disabilities come out of hospital units where they've been stuck for quite a few years. So some of our consultancy stuff and my work takes me into that space still, um, particularly focusing on you know, helping close down assessment treatment units, helping get people out of the wrong environments and get them into their own homes, basically. So, so that's what you know we're sort of passionate about, really, and hence you know I've connected up with you, really, uh, in terms of what you offer. So, fantastic, thank you. So, a really kind of diverse background in in this, really, looking at it from several different perspectives, you know, over that time. Um, now, obviously, not everyone's going to know what self directed stuff is so talk yeah. about it explain what we're talking about when we're saying self-directed budgets and self-directed care what, what yeah. are you talking well, about <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so okay so well in simple terms basically if, obviously if you have an eligible need if you need if you need care and support um really your options are you allow the council to arrange it for you or the nhs if it's an nhs personal budget or you can take a what's called a direct payment uh, which is basically when you take control of the budget and the money gets paid to you to basically pay for your own care and support. Um, and we do quite a lot of work around a, a fairly newish model. It's been around since 2014 called individual service funds, which is basically where you nominate a third party organisation to hold the budget on your behalf. And then you work with them to direct your own support, basically. But the main premise of self-directed support is to move away from having somebody else try and organise your support for you to you taking control of that process and being able to direct your own <clears throat> arrangements, basically. Um, more like a consumer model, if, if I'm honest, we want to re-simplify mm -hmm. it. It's a bit like, you know, you want to go, you know, go into a supermarket and letting somebody else go shopping for you, kind of, <laughs> rather than you going in there yourself with the money and you buy the products that you want, that are the right products for you, rather than 
seeing what's, yeah. what turns up, like a delivery that turns up with the wrong items, you know. It's um, <laughs> a good we, analogy, absolutely, yeah. you know, that so, you get the control over it. So it's giving people yeah. the voice to, to say what they want to happen, how they want their care to be delivered, when, how, who, those kind of options, is that what Those kind of things about? that you think would be fairly rudimentary, but we still find a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of process involved, a lot of bureaucracy in, in local government and in NHS services, and a lot of um, reluctance to relinquish control. I think mm-hmm. professional ex- professional pride, maybe a little bit. And I've, you know, I've been there with some, in some scenarios as well where you think you do kind of know better than people, um, but actually it's about letting go of control. And it's a really big, it's a really difficult thing, I think, for people, in, particularly in commissioning, who have you know worked for a long time and had that control over what's going on locally to sort of step back and say, no, my job is not about organizing your care for you it's about putting those right products on the supermarket shelf so you can go out with your budget and buy the stuff that you want and my job as a commissioner is then more about what we call market shaping which is about having good quality providers good quality housing options all those kind of things that you would want locally using that analogy of a supermarket Um, but you are empowered to go out with your budget and go and find the support and make make the arrangements that work for you basically so fantastic that's that's our mission Obviously, that can be quite complicated for some of the people that you're supporting, you know, and working alongside because some of these individuals maybe um, are deemed to not have the rights or the ability to make these decisions. And people sometimes will assume that someone with a learning disability can't make those decisions and can't have these conversations. What would you say to people saying that, Chris? I think it's a fascinating point. I think you're absolutely right. I think people have... For, for a lot of people with disabilities, people have taken control of their lives for a long time, actually, and made decisions for them and not really included them. Um, and we find some of our work is really f- interesting when you look at devolving real choices back to people and you actually have those conversations. People make completely different choices to what you actually would expect. We've had people that have been going to day services for, say, literally 20 years. Um, nobody would ever really asked them if they wanted to go to the day service. <laughs> which to me sounds ridiculous but if you're in the yeah. system you know how it works mm-hmm. you know social workers are pressed you might not get a social worker you might go two or three years in between a review you know things just kind of roll along yeah transport um, turns up every tuesday you just transport turns up on tuesday people yeah. just get on the bus and <laughs> off they go and, and that kind of stuff and you know and then you have the, the deep conversation with somebody it turns out they hate the day service and they think it's just sitting around eating tea and cake and getting fat and um <laughs> they elect to go off and rent an allotment with their friend with their personal budget instead and just pull their put their money together to go off and do something that they're passionate about and go and put about in the in the allotment and be outdoors and do the healthy sort of stuff. Um, it's those little things, you know, that, that's obviously mm. a little example of, of it really. But yeah, I think what we found fascinating is that people don't really know what choice is a lot of people, which is really sad and terrible to be honest with you. Um, so part of the work with us and, and what we always encourage people to do really is actually start thinking about, how, you know, how do you get people to start making choices mm-hmm. just in general, you know, because actually the, the concept of arranging your own care is fairly complicated but actually you know so you almost need to start a step or two or three steps before that just around day-to-day life decisions all this kind of stuff so it's really interesting but obviously with the right support people can make their own choices absolutely they've got you know if they've got capacity amazing you can make stuff easy to understand for people that's been a big thing you know there's this automatic sort of prejudice that people don't have capacity and that's on you know we know that's unlawful you know it's decision specific so people shouldn't have decisions made for them um and you should do you know, everything in your power to empower that person to understand the decision 
to be able to then make that decision, if that makes sense. So, so mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it means working for quite a few years, really, with them to build their confidence, to build their understanding, and to build the, you know, to build their, their understanding of what choice is, really, to be able to then be able to exercise it. So, I think that's one of the factors that that is a bit of a blocker to people taking self, you know, t- taking that self-directed support and going in that direction is just that they're not used to actually being able to take fundamental basic decisions basically mm-hmm. so so i would say, always say to people you know please you know make an effort to make stuff easy read make sure that you put the person absolutely in control of their own life as much as they can and if they you know and maybe they're not there yet but with over time working with people coaching people supporting them to think about how to make decisions you know people can absolutely get there and obviously we've seen that loads of times like people mm. have come in and they've been maybe low low self-esteem low confidence you know not not really ever been asked some of these fundamental things that me and you probably take for granted like you know if somebody you want you you want to do something you probably go and do it you know you're not going to ask for permission and it's just about building people's confidence up and then helping them sort of you know as a bit of a cliche but it's like step into their own power really and effectively sort of helping people self-actualize so that, that was a bit of a really, deep answer actually but, no but it's really really but, important isn't it and i think it's that you know it's a fundamental human right isn't it the ability to choose what you do where you live who you live with those kind of things are and they're, they're often overlooked aren't they because someone designs a supported living scheme for six people they're going to be placed in this property you know and actually um have those people chosen to live together it's it's those kind of questions isn't it you know yeah and they're more fundamental than just about self-directed support they're the basic exactly what you said really about human right you know the right to choose really who you live with and who you associate mm. with and all those kind of things and i think you know, my, my passion really and the reason I ended up going into self-directed support as a direction of travel was because I, I started off my career working in institutional settings. They were um, locally based hospital units, basically. And the staff were brilliant, amazing. Like, there's amazing people that were. They're absolutely fabulous. And the residents were amazing, um, but they had no rights. They just had nothing. I mean, the food would come down the hospital trolley. So your choices were like, you know, spotted dick and custard or roly-poly. And, and that was it. And it was literally hospital food got delivered. And these were people that just with learning disabilities who absolutely, to my mind, could be living in the community. I, I left that job after a couple of years. I was really frustrated in it. And I went to work in community-based supported living services, um, spent quite a few years in that environment because it was just, I just knew it was the right thing to do. People just living in their own homes. And a lot of my passion, probably the, the direction of travel I've taken in life is kind of seeing that stuff and feeling aggra- aggravated by the injustice of some of that stuff where people had literally been just, stuffed into services you know without any choice or control whatsoever and then of course an outcome an outcome from that was obviously some people it affected their behaviors and they weren't happy and they would express that through their behaviors and 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 you know looking back at that it was frustration because there wasn't enough staff on shift to be able to go out in the car a fundamental right to just leave your own property when you want to people weren't able to so so that was kind of, if I'm honest with you, that was one of the drivers that, that took me into this so I've been super stubborn and super hot on anything to do with deinstitutionalization as, as far as I'm concerned and that includes supported living you know if it's not if there's no real choice and control no tenancy agreement in place if people are getting forced to accept other people coming in to live with them for me that's a mini institution it's what we call a micro institution I've also you know I spent a long time in my career trying to not close residential care this sounds really awful like don't get me wrong I worked in residential care as well like I've, I've seen it on that side as well mm. it's just the wrong you know having meal planners and people taking you know it's too invasive. It takes. It still disempowers people too much, my, in my opinion. So residential care for me was always on my hit list in commissioning. I always wanted to, to, to not close providers down, but help them deregister. Think about maybe keeping supporting people change from a registered care provider to a dom care provider. Think about can you remodel your scheme? Could you turn it into flats? Could you perhaps look at people 
you know, maybe moving on from your scheme, maybe it's not the right scheme for them, maybe it can't be remodeled, but maybe you could support them in the community if they choose to, you know, to, to still have you as a support provider. So managed to, what I call eradicate, it sounds a bit brutal, but I did eradicate residential care from quite a large swathe of the areas where I worked, where, where we were the only commissioner. Obviously, a lot of the issue with some of that is that people's, um, put their budget comes from multiple local authorities, so it might be a residential setting with lots of different um, out-of-area um, kind of funded people basically living there, so it's more more challenging but but for me I, i'm never going to be satisfied until basically every single person with lowest space has their own home and i'm not i'm not like an evangelist about people having their own front doors i do understand that I've, i worked in shared support living and some of it was like a family and it was absolutely astounding how people peer supported each other looked out for each other it was wonderful to be honest with you i've worked in support living where the dynamics have been wrong and people didn't get on and, and they shouldn't have lived there and then there's been you know there's been issues around people obviously having to move out and vacancies and all that kind of stuff. So my gut feeling and the direction of travel that I took mainly, you know, as a commissioner was to go into was clusters of support. So I think a lot of people assume these kind of um, situations have closed. You know, we talk about them in the past tense and we talk about these as though that it's old practice, but actually it's still happening, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's still very real, you know, for mm. a lot of people um, living in places like this. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, I think people are aware of, need to be, be very aware of. Coming back to the, the self-directed budgets and stuff, it, is that something that if I'm a care provider listening to this, is this something that I can help the people I work alongside access or is it something that needs to be done through a third party or how does that work? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, basically, people, need, we need advocates, we need allies in this process, really. So we're really keen that support providers equip themselves with good knowledge around personal budgets, really, so that they can then go and advocate for people they support or support or help the people they're supporting to go and advocate for themselves, ideally. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's really just having that basic understanding of people's rights under the CARE Act. So one of the things I'm really passionate about is, is getting people to have a look at the CARE Act guidance. So as anybody can literally just google now the care act itself is complicated legal terms and you know parliament all that kind of stuff uh, website it's hard to it's decipher but the care act guidance is absolutely brilliant really really helpful about personal budgets what you should expect from social services what people should expect in terms of reviews being offered a personal budget being offered a direct payment as part of that conversation the care act says that local authorities should be offering individual service funds um but again you know it's patchy the coverage around the country so not everybody is having access to things that really the statute or the law is saying that people should have so for me as a care provider it's about understanding really that people have a right to ask for direct payment and there's some principles around that direct payment that are really important and one of them is the sufficiency principle which is the fact you know that a person's budget should be adequate to cover the cost of their support what I what can what I can find sometimes is a tension is that local authorities will say they have a direct payment rate, and that direct payment rate is usually for personal assistance. To be honest, which is you know where the person employs their own um, support worker basically directly to them. Mm. Um, but of course, they don't have all the overhead costs of supporting living providers, you know, home care or domiciliary care, whatever it is. So so the hourly rate tends to be I don't know, let's say for example, fourteen fifteen pounds an hour, and what that can do sometimes people don't think they can ask for any more than that they think that's that is the direct payment rate so if i want a direct payment i can only have 14 pounds an hour whatever it is um which, which has been set locally but actually it's about sufficiency and it's about needs so if that person needs support from a support living provider and that support living provider is let's say 16 17 pounds per hour there's no reason that the council can't give that person the same money that they would have commissioned the service for anyway and pay that to them as a direct payment to be able to take over 
and be the, the customer. So, so I advocate massively every people, families, I always say take direct payments because it's, it, it's a, it's, it, and when I say about control, it's not like being a control, like from a, like a, a control freak point of view. It's an example of this quite recently happened up the road from where I live. Um, I got talking to some families. I won't say where it was because, you know, people know mm. stuff. Um, but it was a group of families and half of them had direct payments and half of them had a commission service and they were really unhappy with their support provider. So they came to me just for a conversation about how to unpick this is a bit of a mess, really. Um, and basically, the guys with direct payments wanted to just go off and recommission and found, had found another provider and really happy with them. But the other half of the family group, unfortunately, were stuck in, and the, the people there were stuck in commission services. So they had to effectively allow the commissioners to get involved and take over. And they took over the whole running of the process. It became a big procurement exercise, something that really could have been solved, actually, if I'm honest with you, within four weeks, probably like a traditional notice period. I they were still talking to me four or five months later about oh. it and it dragged on and then because of the procurement stuff they'd end up with the wrong sport living provider again and so <laughs> you know so it kind of went on and on and really the solution and I think a lot of the guys during that conversation started to really appreciate the benefits of a direct payment because it puts you in charge of your own support and you don't have to rely on other people to make those decisions for you so so that was just a not necessarily a negative example but just really important I think that people are empowered to have their budget and they take it and the reason to, to want a budget to, to have it that way is so you can avoid those kind of situations mm. so if somebody if you're if you're not getting on with the provider and in fact there's multiple times in my career you know where i've had to step in where support's not been working and we've had to like terminate a provider's contract and that can take months or years and often from where sometimes commissioners are a bit wary of it because of, because of the, the comeback you know are we going to get a legal challenge all these mm. kind of things I don't hear anybody complain, but if a family terminates, if a person terminates an agreement with a provider directly or a family does, everyone just walks away. No, there's never any comeback on that kind of stuff. It, you know, so it's a really, you know, the power dynamic is is, is much different and, and the process and that kind of stuff is much more straightforward. To, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's not, so it's not just about designing your life. It's about making sure that you have, you are, you can be the terminator <laughs> of if that support is not working. I know it sounds really awful, but it no, happens no. so often, you know, yeah. people are just unhappy with the service that they're getting. And, and we don't want that status quo. You don't want to just have poor quality services because nobody can get out of them. What mm. we want is a really dynamic, vibrant market where people have access to really high quality support. And I think personal budgets drive that a little bit because it is the consumer model. It's, it's the reason we're not communists, if, if you know what I mean. It's, it's the, it is, unfortunately, it is capitalism. I'm not a massive capitalist. I'm not a massive anti-capitalist. <laughs> but I'm just, you know, just for me, capitalism, unfortunately, is the, is the working model. And I think it, you know, personal budgets just fit really well into that. And it just gives you that, that, that choice and control, really. So oh, Absolutely. It's putting the person back in the driving seat, isn't it? And making the, the choice and the control of what happens in, in, in their own lives. Um, we'll put the link to the the document you were talking about in the show notes so people can mm-hmm. find it you know if you if you get that link over to me then we can make sure that everyone can find that so so if people want to dig into that a little bit more to kind of understand it um you were talking also about the some advocates because obviously um if you not everybody has a family member or or someone and it probably can become quite an arduous process being holding someone's budget for them I imagine that's quite complex if you've got aging pa- parents potentially you know or or something like that so there, there is an advocacy process is that right is that the correct terminology or is there a different name for it Chris yeah I mean yeah I guess it's I mean advocacy obviously the people have a right to advocacy under the care act yeah. in terms of in terms of yeah if we're looking at it as a direct payment 
you can have, and this sounds weird, you can have an indirect direct payment. <laughs> which can indirect, go to, direct Yeah, payment. which, okay, it, yeah. honestly, that's the legal language. It, it okay. makes me chuckle every time I say yeah. it out loud. But, um, so basically, yeah, you're absolutely right. So one of the barriers for a lot of people is <clears throat> they don't have, some people don't have family to take their own payment. They don't have, they're not deemed to have capacity necessarily to take that budget direct themselves. Um, there are organisations out there that you can effectively nominate to hold your budget for you. Um, there's not loads of them, but mm. there are a few who are really committed to that. Um, there's some excellent ones in the um, supported living space, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can nominate a third party organisation to hold the budget for you. Um, and then that arrangement is kind of over, well, it's overseen by obviously the person, hopefully, but also the social worker. So there's a, it becomes more of a three-way agreement between the person, the holding organisation and the social worker, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, or the local authority. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, there's options for people to do that. But for direct payments, it's more complicated and there are, and often organisations are reluctant to sign a direct payment agreement to take on that responsibility. So, which is why we've ended up going down much more towards the individual service funds route, which is similar um, but the responsibility uh, isn't so intense on the holding organisation. It's much more of a, um, it's more of a negotiated agreement between all three parties where they have some of the flexibilities, but not the total control that you get through a direct payment. So if you want full control of how you use your budget, or if, in an ideal world, if, if there's not that, you know, restrictions on how that budget's used, um, you'd have a direct payment. If you don't, if you can't manage a direct payment, don't want to manage a direct payment, then the individual service funds are great you know, opportunity really. And it's supported living providers can hold that budget basically on behalf of the person. So we're seeing quite a, we're seeing it split into two sort of segments really. We're seeing care providers, and by that I really mean domiciliary care providers, you know, support, support living, whichever terminology you want, holding, doing most of the care still for people, the, the day-to-day support, but holding their budget and being able to use the money slightly differently. So, so just for example, you know, to put this in sort of simple terms, if you had somebody who had 10 hours a week of support and their personal budget was 150 quid a week and that provider said, well, actually, you know, if we can deliver some of these outcomes differently. Um, for example, you know, maybe get you a personal trainer instead of having a sport worker go to the gym with you because sport workers aren't experts in nutrition and, phys- you know, you know, physical sort of exercise stuff. I mean, there might be some of them, you know, um, but, but in general, there's, there's probably more efficient ways you could use money for people. So, so that week, that person might have two, eight hours of direct support and they'll convert two hours into 30 quid, which will go to pay a personal trainer, which gets the outcome for that person in a better way than having two hours of support worker time who don't necessarily know how to do that, that nutrition and the, phys, you know, the exercise mm. sort of stuff. So it's just allowing, so, so, so that's a massive, that's a growing segment. So it's care providers, support providers who are basically holding budgets for people and starting to think about how to use bits of them differently. Still, obviously, for people in that arrangement, there's going to be a need for support. Um, so it's not about replacing the whole thing. And it's not you don't turn the whole budget into money and then it, there's no support delivered. It rarely works like that. It's usually that there's, this, there's little slivers of the, of the person's budget that can be used just slightly more effectively to deliver outcomes. And mm-hmm. the provider then has the conversation with the person and they decide how to use that money. Um, and obviously, the other side of it, there's there's the sort of independent brokerage side of things as well. So there's a few user-led organisations, there's the terminology sometimes that gets used or centres for independent living, but really disability-centric organisations that are really passionate about self-directed support and they can, will offer um, the opportunity for you to situate your budget with them and they'll broker that, they'll broker with you. Which And brokerage for me really means personal planning, good old-fashioned, simple, what's important to you, what's important for you, what 
goals do you need to achieve you know just really getting an understanding of, of that person and where they want to go and then just getting that budget amount and thinking about the best ways of deploying it you know and it isn't always paid support it isn't always care that gets used it can be you know membership for clubs could be connecting somebody to a walking group that's up the road that might not might be two quid a week you know whatever it is mm-hmm. you know for the subs it's about sort of thinking much more holistically away from just just care and support but sometimes the brokers will buy support for people as well so they can actually buy care and support but the big i think the biggest the seismic change in, in the sector for me is is individual service funds is this concept of you're the provider but you more and more you you might get asked to be the custodian of the budget and so it's then again going back to what you were saying earlier about you know people being able to feel confident to advocate around self-directed support all this sort of stuff so some of our work is working with provider organizations to help equip them with the knowledge of how to do this stuff you know and how to and what we talk about defensible decision making so like how do you so you're a provider, you know, I used to work in private services. I, it was just hours. So all we got used to was delivering hours and we never got asked to use our brains any differently. Now we're asking providers to say, well, hang on a minute. Think about that budget. Don't just think about hours. Think about other things. You know, good examples, you know, a friend of mine down the road, he's supporting a, a wonderful chap who he, he didn't have great self-confidence. And so he has an ISF and they had his budget and there was a there was a horse whispering. It's a horse whispering. It's called the horse course, which is I think it's quite cool. But basically, it's it's a therapy involving animals to build your confidence. Yeah. And yeah. So so they said right. Well, we're not equipped. We're a support provider. We're not equipped to build people's confidence necessarily that well. So what we will we'll take some of your weekly personal budget and we'll use we'll help you know we'll, we'll buy you that some sessions on the horse course. And of course, over you know over time, his confidence has grown massively, and you know he handles the animals amazing, and he's starting to take more and more control of his life. And where he is now is just he's in such a better place than he was a few years ago. It's incredible, really inspirational, really moving stuff. And it's just the ability to do that, and the providers, yeah, it's so simple. Like I don't understand why um, it's taken so many years for this to sort of percolate through into the system, but. Um, so yeah, so they still do the majority. He lives in sport living. The provider still does the majority of his support hours, but some parts of his weekly budget they convert from support hours into things like that, sessional support. So it's really simple stuff, really. Yeah, so. but really creative and really yeah, making giving people choices and and experiences. It sounds really powerful. We'll put the link to your um, website with your contact details and stuff there as well, Chris, so people yeah, can cool. contact you if they want to sort of find out more about what you do and how you can help people to understand this stuff. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, thank you. It's been really great to kind of talk it through and understand a bit more about about these these issues, these bits and pieces that are really yeah. important for us to understand. So thank you for joining me today, Chris. Yeah, thank no you. worries at all. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you.